You're now listening to the Talking Pictures Podcast, broadcasting from sunny Orange County, California. Filmmaker, journalist, and film historian, Paul Booth. Aloha. Welcome to Talking Pictures with Paul Booth. I'm your host. Man, it is a great day to make movies, watch movies, and especially discuss movies. Before I bring the guest in, I want to take the time to dedicate this episode to our friend, associate, fellow humanitarian who we lost this weekend to brain cancer, Miss Elizabeth Mitchell. You guys can check out her show, Dushaholics, on Amazon. Uh, she was a just a great guest to have, a huge supporter of film, always giving to other filmmakers, doing exactly what I think film is about, which is to do your best, support others, and lose the ego. So with that, Elizabeth, peace to you. I see we have our caller on. Welcome to the show. Hello. 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 Welcome to the show. How's it going? How are you? Going I'm well. good. I'm good. Uh, welcome to Talking Pictures today. So happy to be joined today. This uh, this guy's work is awesome. You guys can check out uh, Jack Ryan on Amazon, the 33 IMDb him. I guess my first question for you would be, and it's probably the only generic question we have is, uh, what made you say, I'm going to make films or I'm going to be a cinematographer? Actually, the possibility of deciding that was not given to me. It was very funny. I'm, I'm a trained architect. Um, I finished studying architecture in Italy. I went back to Peru where I was living with my family and I wanted to build wonderful houses and buildings and spaces for humans to live and work. And obviously the early eighties economical crisis number 428 of the decade uh, nobody was building anything, not even a brick. And a friend of mine, friend of my brother, older brother, um, said to me, what are you doing? I'm like, nothing. There is nothing I can do. And he goes, oh, we have this company. It's an adventure travel company. And I'm like, adventure? Travel? And you're actually going to pay me? He goes, yes. Oh, great. So Monday I went to the office and started learning the trade and the skills and what to do with the tourists when they were river rafting and climbing mountains. And by Wednesday, a guy in the back of the office said, Hey, you, the new one, do you speak English? And I'm like, yes, I do a little bit. Um, and do you know anything about photography? And I'm like, well, yeah, in the architecture classes, they taught me a little bit about black and white photography. And he answered the phone and said, yes, we have a camera assistant and hang up. And like, Whoa, 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 what happened? I don't know. <laughs> In three days, National Geographic is coming to do a documentary, and uh, you're their camera assistant. And that was ah. 1983. <laughs> that was it. After three, days, after three days, after three days of sort of trying to tell the guy that I really didn't know anything, the producer, he said, I don't know, you're pretty good at this. I mean, this is it's pure instinct, so you're fine. And if you don't work, I'll just replace you with someone else. Um, I ended up doing 29 documentaries with National Geographic Explorer uh, in the 80s. And uh, that was it. After three days, I said, I don't think I'm doing little houses anymore. <laughs> I love it. Don't you just love the serendipity of certain uh, moments? I mean, I, I, 
I love that when you just maybe met somebody over a beer and then like two years later, you're producing a feature together and it's like, huh? Like who would have known that beer would have become that? That's so fantastic. So architecture with that kind of being what your thing was, uh, how, like, how, how does that apply with, to, to what you do and because of your background? Well, if I were to start again and, uh, Re, if, if I were to go back to 1980, whatever, I think I would study architecture again. Um, one of the things that architects do is they build spaces. They don't build walls. They build spaces for humans to interact with each other, with the environment, with the space, to be silent. And cinematographers, we don't light walls. We light spaces where humans interact and when humans do the same things. So you learn a lot about uh, egress and, and, and access of rooms. And let me give you an example. I, I don't know if you cook. I love to cook. So your fridge, your sink, and your stove are a triangle. And if they are placed in the right way, it's very simple to cook. So you go from the stove to the fridge, from the fridge to the sink, from the sink to the stove. And it's very simple. Imagine that on a set, if the set is built in a way that it's simple for the actors to interact or the director makes a blocking that makes sense. So the actor comes on that door and exits this door and the other one is looking at him and they look at each other. If that makes sense, it's extraordinarily simple to cover a scene. And by simple, I don't mean... um, I don't mean unpleasant. I mean, it, you, can, you can do whatever you want, but it's, it works and it makes sense. So when I look at a floor plan from a set, I go back to my years in architecture and I ask, what is the scale? What is this space? I think it's too small. Let's make it a little bigger. I think it's too big. What about this window? I have a knowledge that helps me in understanding the process. And the other thing is you study art. In cinematography, it's putting colors and, and textures in the screen or in your little iPhone nowadays. Um, All right. <laughs> that, that, makes, that makes life, uh, makes you feel something. You know, if you go into a space that an architect has designed, it makes you feel peace. It makes you feel happiness. It makes you feel anxiety. It depends on what the, the feel is. And it's the same for a cinematographer or a production designer. So I think it's wonderful. Well, I love that analogy. And I'm, it's sometimes ironic. Some of the cinematographers that I've been blessed to interview, like yourself and others, because cinematography was the one class in film school that I couldn't grasp the mathematics of the F stop and the lens and how, and the measurement to the actor and then the background and the foreground. And so I, I just, I, I love that analogy of cook because my father had a restaurant for 22 years. So as you're saying that I'm realizing the proper placement of the pizza toppings and is there enough room to put the paddle in the oven? And wow, I'm kind of floored by that. I'm, I'm uh wow, that is wonderful. So okay. Uh, now, with, now okay, I'm gonna so, hit you sorry? with a, yeah. I'm gonna hit you with another one though. I do believe, and you're gonna like this one, but I do firmly believe that cinematographers are like chess. We all go to the same supermarket, 
We all buy the same tomatoes. We all buy the same parsley and the same olive oil. We all go to Ralph's in the case of LA or whatever you are. We all go and buy the same right. things. But if you give that to one cinematographer, he'll do one dish. And you give that to another chef and he'll do another dish. It's not about the tomato. It's about who cooks it. Oh, I love that. Well, that would lead me to something that I've always wondered uh, for yourself. And of course, there's a million, there could be a million choices. There could be none, but uh, the way maybe like you're saying, every cinematographer metaphorically cooks a different dish. Is, is there a film that that you've ever seen and, and you don't have to name names or whatever, but I'm saying like, is there a film you've seen where you've just been like, I would have loved to have a shot at cooking that dish. Like it was great and it tasted great, but, uh, in a non-judgmental way, just like, wow, that would have been, that would have been cool to play in that kitchen. Um, if your podcast were to last 18 hours, I'll start with the list know, of the IMDb with the A, and I'll finish with the Z. Well, hey, a I don't know what you're doing. I'm I'm free yeah. for the next three hours. Sorry. <laughs> any any film, any film. Um, I mean, with 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 limits of of uh, subject matter and and taste, you know. But any film that you can imagine, right. I would love to have done. Or love to participate, or I'm, love to witness, or be a fly in the wall. You know what I mean? With some obvious exceptions that I'm not going to mention. Right, right. Oh, of course. Well, no, I, you know, I really like that because I, you just made me realize that it's like when people ask me with my film history, film journalism, and then I've, I've produced features in Blockbuster of when people say, what's your favorite movie? And I just always say, well, what day? Or what time of day? Happened. Or... What's my mood? Or, yeah, or um, exactly. Is it a Sunday? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Right. Or, I mean, I I think we all have our. I call them. These are the movies I would grab if the house was on fire. Um, after everyone was safe, I'm not going to lose my copy of Lords of Arabia. Or, but yeah. Oh, I like that. I love that. So, so Jack Ryan. People, if uh, people out there, if you have not seen it, this is such a tense show. There was this brilliant episode, number five. You can binge watch, binge watch this show. I'm not going to tell you what the payoff was, but you guys managed to use a video game. Now, of course, the story added to what was tense, but I would love to know when you sit down and like you're saying, floor plan, the architecture of, okay, we have a video game and a controller, and a couple of chairs. What is something you could say uh, that you remember about just, I mean, I, I, I thought that was as tense as like strangers on a train. So what, what could you tell us about that uh, episode five, Men of Honor, and that video game sequence? Oh, wow. Jack Ryan was a very, another, Jack Ryan was another serendipity in my life. Um, I'm married to an extraordinary woman and um, she's a wonderful mother and a wonderful wife, but she's an even better director. Um, I hope she doesn't listen to this podcast. Um, and, and she, we do. And she, <laughs> <laughs> you and the other two million people, but that's cool. Um, she got hired to do Jack Ryan, 
we've done most of our work together, most of our work together with me. As you know, directors work less frequent than cinematographers. They have a lot of prep and, and we just walk in towards the end and walk out and then directors had to edit for years or months, not years, but months. Right. I was in between something, she got hired for that. And I said, listen, we have a, at that point, it was a nine-year-old daughter. She's 12 now, it's almost 13. Um, uh, don't worry, I won't work. I'll stay with Francesca and you go and do whatever you need to do. And that's how we roll and that's how life is. So she went to Montreal and started shooting a little bit. The, the, Jack Ryan was very complex. He shot in five countries. And she started shooting a little bit. And um, I think they underestimated a little bit the, the, the amount of work, but it really would have been. So they had two cinematographers, two wonderful colleagues of mine. Um, and four directors ah, okay. cross-boarding and shooting constantly. So I went there with Francesca and we went and visit. And one day we, we were in Montreal, so we went skiing and she was working six in the morning to 12 o'clock at night. So we barely see Patricia. And one day I go and visit the set and I found like a couple of producer friends. Hey, how are you? What are you doing? And one of them turned to me and said, what are you doing here? I'm like, uh, uh, I'm Patricia's husband and that's Francesca, my daughter, our daughter, and we're here visiting. Oh my God, we need you. I'm like, what do you mean we need you? Uh, yeah, we need you to scout tomorrow. And I'm like, no, I'm with my daughter. Well, we have an issue. The other cinematographer is shooting. The location is only available tomorrow. We need you to scout and start shooting. And there I was. Wow. I, had to borrow, I had to borrow a light meter. I had to went to the Indigo. Uh, I think it's Indigo. The Bars and Noble in Toronto, in uh, Montreal. But buy my daughter a stack of books um, and drop her in a van with us for 18 hours while scouting. And then we flew a cousin from Mexico to take care of her for two weeks while I was shooting in there. And then I flew to Morocco and I shot another 40 days. But that was literally like that. So <laughs> I love it. Yeah. As I said before, one of the magics of filmmaking is that it's a community and it's a communitarian effort, you know? Uh, yes, it's a vertical structure. The director is the, 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 the owner of the playground and we all get to play in it under certain rules. When you work with a director as talented and as cinematic as Patricia Regan is, then every scene has a meaning and every scene transmits and, and transfer a meaning from the screen to the audience. And she designed that scene in a very sophisticated way. And I wouldn't say she's the kind of director that would sort of do, even though she does storyboards and floor plans, and she's very prepared for that. I wouldn't say that she's the kind of director that would come and say, this is a 50 millimeter lens here. She would come and say, this is the feeling I want to transmit. This is, I need anxiety, I need, I need fear, I need tension. So I was thinking about this, what do you think? Um, and then I add my little grain of pepper and oregano to the mix, and uh, there you go, the plate was tasty. That was, I remembered that, and then when I was watching it, I was just like, you know, I only know this twitch from the Hitchcock film, as many great thrillers and suspense movies as we have, 
whatever, uh, you know, I'm kind of from that generation of, uh, the younger people thought like the usual suspects invented thrillers or intensity or not being presumptuous, but I just, you know, I'm, 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 I'm only, I'm 40 years old. So I'm at that age where I'm starting to notice that something like say fight club is so normal to me, but then I hear somebody just a little bit younger, not knowing what that is, which that's fine. I think everybody enters metaphorically enters the kitchen when they're supposed to think yeah. I'm not one of those people who's like, what do you mean? You don't know John Ford. So when you were, uh, so, okay. So, so Jack Ryan, that, I mean, that show obviously is so filled with emotion. So here's something that I really like to, uh, and you had mentioned that she's not, she's not a specific lens person. I had just as purely as a film fan, I'm always wondering when, in, in the cases of Jack Ryan, does the discussion happen for uh, lenses, the actual decision? And like, is there ever a time that we don't know about to where maybe you you do a scene and it's 35 lens and then you're like, wait a minute, you know what, 50 might work better. So, I mean, I don't, I don't want to be naive, but I just, some of this stuff I like to learn. So I don't like to research at all uh, about like a lens change. In the case, in the particular case of Jack Ryan, as I said, I walked in on episode two and a half, you know, whatever, the beginning of three. Right. Um, so Richard Rutowski, which was, is a wonderful cinematographer. He was, in charge of the pilot. So therefore, as tradition, with some liberty and freedom, the pilot DP sort of sets up the look and sets up the the overall conversation with the grammar and the, the lenses and, and the camera moves. So I had no problem adapting to that because he set up a wonderful palette to work with. In the case of every director is different, um, and you have to adapt to them. There are some directors that are very specific. The, the camera comes here, goes at this height, and has this lens. And there are some other directors that say, this is the feeling I want to portray. Um, I did, luckily for me, I did one of the, I believe was one of the last movies that uh, Peter Yates, the British director. Uh, oh, boy. Yeah, Bullet. I didn't do Bullet, but uh, I did one of the last movies he did. He was already, I believe, 89 or 90 when we did that movie, which was wonderful. Ooh, that's awesome. And Peter and I was completely shaking because working with Peter Yates is like working with a legend, you know. And this was 20 years ago. Um, So I said to Peter, would you, and he goes, my son, I'm not going to tell you what to do. That's your job. I'm just going to tell you if I like it or not with a very thick and posh British, you know, upper class British accent. Um, So I put a lens and I set up a shot and I said, what do you think as an opening? And he looked at me with a smirk in his nose that he was smelling something rotten. And he said, is this your best shot? (laughs) And I'm like, well, maybe not. <laughs> Maybe not. Let me think about this uh, for a minute. So uh, there are directors like Peter that won't tell you anything. He will tell you, oh, I love it. And he will tell you, oh, no, I won't like it. You know. And there are some other directors very specific. So I think one, the, the ability of the cinematographer is to adapt himself 
to the environment. And one of the things I always tell uh, when I do master classes, or I, it's a little pompous to call them master classes, but when I, whenever I, I bore them with anecdotes and try to teach them what not to do to some young filmmakers, the first thing I say is, you are a tool in the hands of the storytelling and the director and nothing that you feel is more important than what the audience would feel. If you feel right, the audience will feel right. If you do it because of your ego or because you don't want to make a mistake or because you were afraid of making mistakes, then the audience will sense it. The audience, the, the sense of the audience, the, the audience sense of smell, it's bigger than a dog house. You know, one of those little basset hounds, you know, that the police use. Oh, right, right. The, uh, the audience, the audience has a sense of smell. They smell the blood in the water way further than a white shark. So if you are afraid and if you're making a decision just to avoid a mistake, the audience will sense it and they will completely disconnect. Because, mind you, the audience, it's made of hundreds of thousands of people. So it's the collective brain that counts. So even a movie that you consider is not a movie worth it, a lot of people like it. And whatever they like, they all like. And it's a collective sense. So one has to be very careful to serve the director, but also to serve the ultimate goal, which is to serve the audience. Whether the audience is a small film festival in the middle of nowhere and you want to serve that audience, or whether your audience is the B-movie of the blockbuster of the month in, in, in what used to be nice theaters. Now with the coronavirus, they don't happen anymore. You know, but right. that's the audience. It doesn't matter, you know. And that, so it, it, it's, it's a very philosophical conversation. And I don't know if I answer your question, but yes. No, no, no. The 50, sometimes you choose a 50 and it's the wrong lens. And you have to have the, the stamina to say, whoops. I made a mistake, let's put a 35, you know, and let's see what happens. Even after you shot it and you go to the actors and say, that's on me. Sorry, guys, I want to do it again, you know. And once you establish oh, a trust relationship, uh, that's fine. Oh, I totally love that answer, uh, especially when you're saying the serve because applying the audience. It's why if, uh, for our show, it's what I, I, I have a great pride in that we've had uh, you know, filmmakers, resumes like yourself. We've had first time students and our just tagline, like you had mentioned, I, I feel pompous when I say it, but I say it to let people know, we just say that we're students to Oscar nominees because everybody was a student or everybody started somewhere. So we have never wanted to, we've always just wanted to serve film. So if you're telling me about a student film, or you're telling me something, I, I apply the respect and the appreciation to all the different levels. But to me, it's just like, hey, like you're saying, somebody's creating, somebody's trying to reach an audience. Uh, why does it just have to be showing at Tribeca to be worthy? So thank you for mentioning that. Uh, and I'm, that, gosh, this, I, I, I thank you for your time because uh, I, like you had mentioned, an 18-hour podcast I always hit that point where I hear a guest say a certain thing and I'm just like, oh man, now I have 34 other questions that I could write down. Uh, <laughs> and I love that because like <laughs> you're saying, cook, the, the cook part. So that kind of leads me to, okay, so the we've used the cook metaphor for the prep, all that. But 
in your actual bare bone shooting, uh, for your, just for your brain, do you think you're more of like, say a jazz musician or do you stick more to like, there needs to be the scientist. We have a budget, we have a clock. Like, what would you say you lean more towards? I think one of the, one of the things I'm very proud of, it's my wife gave me a wonderful watch with one of those little diving things. So you turn the, 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 the ring on top. So when I say to the first AD, assistant director, when are you going to be ready? And I say, I'm going to be ready in 20 minutes. I'll turn my thingy to 20 minutes, you know, and 15 minutes, uh-huh. before, 15 minutes before I will go and say, I'm right on time. You'll be, I'll be ready in five or you know what? This and this happened. So I need another 10. I'm a very rigorous keeper of time and a very rigorous at least as much as I can, keeper of budget. But within those constraints, I'm as irresponsible as you can be. And that's the fun part of it. Once you find the left wall and the right wall, I'll bounce within those walls like a rabbit. But that's me. You know, I, I grew up ah, as a okay. news cameraman and as a, as a documentary cameraman. I never had a traditional film school education, um, which I think is very valuable, uh, but I didn't have it. So when I finished being a, new, uh, a documentary cameraman, um, I decided to move to Washington and say, oh, I'm going to conquer America. I'm going to be the best documentary guy ever. So I moved to Washington after 29 documentaries with National Geographic. I got to Washington, and as soon as I got there, uh, the, the, the regime changed in National Geographic. They got bought by someone, other corporation or whatever. And all my friends got transferred to different divisions or we shovel or quit. So all of a sudden I was in Washington and all my friends were unemployed as long as myself. So, uh, okay, what do I do now? And that sounds like a filmmaker. <laughs> oh yeah, of course, of course. That sounds like everybody's story. And this friend of mine said to me, well, you know, I know... I know you're here to work, but there is this small company called CN something, CN, CN something, CNN in Atlanta. It's a small company that do news. They do news. And I know they need cameramen. So I flew to Atlanta. I literally knocked the door. And this small company, which literally was in the first floor of the TNT building, the Turnit Network Television, uh, they were in like the, the fifth floor in the back office. I met one guy and I said, hi, how are you? I'm a camera. And I didn't finish the sentence. I said, I'm a camera. And he was, you're a cameraman. And I sort of, I not, I wasn't, but I was kind of. And said, we need a cameraman in El Salvador. El Salvador at that point was uh, the center of news for at least the Western hemisphere. And uh, the next morning I was on a plane Whoa, yeah. and uh, I landed in El Salvador and I became a news cameraman or a war correspondent. So I always say, the best place to change professions is the airplane. So you, you, you go from Miami airport as a camera assistant, you land in San Juan, as a, San Salvador as an operator. You, you, you go from Mexico to, you know, LA and you, you climb as a cameraman and you, you know, you get out of the plane through immigration as a DP. So I changed my profession on airplanes. It's all thanks to American Airlines. 
<laughs> I, I absolutely love that because I've been fortunate with anything I've had that is deemed success because I think really, and you know, success is just, you know, I, I sometimes tell people if you're making one dime to do what you like, you've won. Like <laughs> there's so many people that are out there that are, that might never get to work on a project they like or buy a hamburger because their day is a PA. And so I'd like what you're saying about just that moment and just appreciating that, you know, you walked into CNN and weren't trying to say, well, I'm going to be shooting Anderson. Well, you know what I mean? Like I'm going to be shooting the yeah. number one rated show, just being open. Like, I think that's what the, the great mystery, right. Uh, that everybody's trying to figure out when it's just be open. Let me jump in into one thing you mentioned before. We are all students for the Oscar or all. You mentioned something like that before. And, and for, our, for our friends that are film students, there is one thing that is very important to remember always. When you're an architect and you go to architecture school or you are a, you know, a plastic surgeon or you are a, an accountant, in the architecture university or accounting university or whatever, nobody tells you that the goal in your career is to build the tallest building in the world. What you're supposed to do is to be proud of what you do and do a wonderful job and serve the client or serve the client because you're an accountant or serve the client because if you're a musician, nobody tells you that you're going to sing opera at La Scala, you know, in Milan. We are right. sort of, our DNA, it's told us that if you're a chef, Nobody tells you that, oh, you have to have three Michelin stars because that's not the case. I mean, if you cook well, you'll end up doing fine in life, you know, and be happy about it. What I think is a little deceiving in the film industry is that we all want the Oscar. And guess what? There are 11 of them once a year and half of them happen because of reasons that are not directly related to the effort and the amount of passion the filmmaker put in the movie. So... I think the ultimate goal is to be proud of what you do every day, or at least as many days as you can, you know, and, and take yes. that as, as your reward. And the Oscar, if it ever happens, that I don't think it will happen to anybody other than those 11 blessed people, you know, um, once a year. And I don't even believe, I mean, I would love one or two. I, actually, I would love three, but uh, uh, <laughs> it doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't really matter. Right. What matters is that I wake up tomorrow morning and I say, oh, my God, today is going to be really challenging. I don't know how to do this. And then at the end of that night, you, you, you towards going back towards the subway or the car, you do a little dance of happiness, you know, and people look at you because it's crazy because the little dance of happiness is, oh, I did it. I survived. You know, I, I made a great day out of a horrible, shitty situation. And that's my... My, my my little Oscar every half a week, you know? I, I or that's totally an excuse not to have that. an Oscar. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> no, well, no, but I mean, that it's so, I you know, I, I'm only mentioning this because you hit on something that brought up my grandmother for me to where when I was just, before I went to film school, she said, and and I know she wanted to be a filmmaker, I never asked her, but she could regurgitate film history before IMDb, Google, 
She never had to be like, get this book. She'd just be like, dog for Billy Wilder, blah, 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 blah. And she just looked at me in the car one day and she's like, I want you to know when you go off to film school, she said, I hope that, you know, this works, that works. You might succeed, you might fa fail. She goes, you have two goals, that people return your phone calls and that when you're talked about in a conversation, nobody says, why did we hire that asshole? And of course I was 19. I didn't really get what she was saying, but now I'm like, God you know, hence the other. Oh, thank, oh, thank you very much for that compliment. Uh, I'm smart. And, smart and wisdom. So, yes. And, and thank you. I'm sorry. I'm going to get emotional for a sec. Sorry. Um, well, you must be Italian. I must be what? Italian. That's okay. You, I am. My grandmother was half Sicilian, half Italian. Well, there you go. My grandmother and my mother, they both were Italian and my father and everybody else in my family. And I cry easier than I rage. I, I, you know, I, I like that. And uh, because my producer content manager who edits these in a totally great way has told me before, just like, oh, no, well, that's just you. You're just sometimes something just really emotional to you that other people like might've been have to push four levels further. Like, so thank you for that compliment <laughs> from my grandmother. I appreciate that very much. I would love to discuss some of 33, the 33. Uh, I, I remember when I saw that I was lucky to pull out of what I had read, heard it being obviously a story followed around the world. Handing you the ball has the cook. I don't think you need a sous chef on this one. Uh, I, I, I watched that film and I was just like, where the hell were they filming? How did they fit a crew in that spot also? Now that you've explained the space and the architecture thing to me, what was something that was a technical or just an absolutely extreme challenge about that movie where maybe to yourself you were like, holy shit. Um, the 33 was and is one of my favorite projects um, for two reasons. One is because the director, Patricia Regan, um, did an amazing job of telling a story that everybody knew the beginning, the middle of the end. And still the audience was gripping to, to see what happened. And that's, that was her, that is her gift you know, the gift to serve the audience. Um, we knew that 33 minors will survive. We knew this, we knew that. And still you watch the movie and you cry and you, and you cheer and, 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 and there are no secrets because everybody knew the story. So that I think was a big challenge and, 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 and she kept it. Um, she kept the promise. The 33 was very difficult movie. Um, it, it was a, a, a quite, quite generous budget. Uh, for for a, an indie movie, but it still was below 13, 14 million, which sounds like a lot of money, but if compared to the 250 of uh, a Marvel movie, it's you can do 20 um, or 30, uh, 33s with one of those budgets. So we didn't have the luxury of building the sets. The first approach was let's build the mine. And, and after going through the budget, you know, you could build probably like a hundred yards of tunnels and you needed miles and miles of tunnels. So 
the movie takes place in Chile. We couldn't shoot the mining part in Chile for two very specific logistical reasons. One of the reasons is Chile, it's, a, it's a, an earthquake prone country. So there was no insurance possible in, in a mine. And the other is that Chile right. is a mining country. So what are you going to tell the guy? Sorry, don't mine for gold. Lend me your mine for eight weeks, you know, and don't make 200 million hey, a know day here. You know, there's Hollywood people that say that. <laughs> yeah. Lend me your mine for eight weeks, you know, and the guys look at you and like, ah, uh-uh, no. <laughs> so the producers found um, a wonderful set of mines in Colombia in Bogota that started being mined by the indigenous people before the arrival of the Spaniards and their salt mines. And geologically, I'm not sure why. And I, I know, I, I think I know, but I don't matter. Salt is very stable because it's like sand. If there is an earthquake, it will just shift a little bit, but it won't fall on your head, which is desirable if you're in a mine. You know, the things don't fall <laughs> right. on your head. Um, right. So we found the mine. And um, so the, the, the first challenge was the mine, we needed a long stretch of mine. So we ended up creating this almost kilometer and a half, one mile of tunnels that were a set, you know. So to the left, there was where they would eat. To the right, there was where they would have their, their lab and like the tool set. And, and the collapse will be built a little deeper and this and that and the other. To get to the first part of this mile and a half of set, you had to drive for two miles. Mind oh. you, when you drive, it's a, you drive very slowly. You drive like, I think, 10 miles an hour. So it took us 20 minutes to get to the set from the exterior. And it's fascinating what does to your brain. My gaffer in that occasion, uh, David Lee, is an extraordinary gaffer. He he has he does have three Oscars as a gaffer. Um, he said to me at the end of the movie, "This deserves a masterclass in the AFI on just how do we overcome the technicalities of it, let alone the aesthetics." So, how do you bring electricity? You cannot bring Jenny's because the Jenny has an exhaust pipe and everybody will die. So you cannot bring Jenny's. So you need to cable, right. but you cannot cable two miles because, so we <laughs> hired a little, a little company in, in Colombia and we told them, oh, we have this little development. You know, you put a transformer with 15,000 watts at the beginning of the mine and imagine, and these people used to do like little, you know, neighborhoods. So I said, yeah, how many houses? I'm like, well, like five houses. <laughs> so they put a transformer, the 15,000 watts at the beginning, and we went to 7,000 watts da, 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 until we had 110 at the set. You know, that's the first one. Oh. And another great anecdote is um, the walls of the mine. In a real mine, there are a few lights. We had to put a little more. This is a cinematic license. But in the mine, it's like a submarine. The, the right side of the submarine has a red line painted, and the left side of the submarine has a green light painted, which means when you don't know where you're going, if the red is to your right, you're going deeper. If the red is to your left, you're going towards the exit, kind of. You know, I don't know if it makes sense. So in mines, oh, no, your, yeah, lights yeah. Right are, your lights to the right are different shape and color than your lights to the left. So let's say... One is a fluorescent, like a four-foot 
fluorescent and the other one is just a bulb. So you know when something is happening, whatever is to your right, you're going deeper or to your left, you're going further. And that helped a little bit also the color palette. So we wanted to hang these lights in the mine. So we went to Don Lucho, that was the, 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 the head miner of the actual mine, not, not the character, but the, the technician with us. And I say, oh, I need to hang lights here. So I was wondering, we need two miles. So some rebar and some like um, cheap wire so we can hang the light from it. And he goes, oh, no, 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 no. You cannot put just wire, bailing wire. This is a salt mine. It will rust very quickly and all the lights would fall. And I'm like, oh, my God, what are we going to do? And he goes, you need to use steel wire. So we went from $55 worth of a pound of bailing wire to $9,000 of aircraft cable, fittings, tension, wires, our department painting it black. So two weeks later, I'm very proudly looking at it. He comes behind me, he pats me on the shoulder and says, oh my God, this is much better. The other version would have lasted four or five years. This would last 20. And I'm like, don't tell the producer wow. because I needed this to last three weeks. So we went from spending 50 bucks to spend 9,000 just because I got lost in translation, basically. But it was a big challenge. Big, big, big challenge. Like the first day we went there, Don Lucho came one of these days and said, sorry, 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 could you move the video assist a little bit to the left? Yeah, why? And this another guy comes behind him with a huge steel rebar. And he goes, because we're seeing, and so we moved the video village, and he just takes this, you know, pole and hits a rock on top, and this slap of rock the size of a piano falls down. Oh, like, and what happened? No, we saw the crack, and the crack was getting a little thicker, and it's dangerous when that happens, so we'd rather do it before it falls by itself. I'm like, holy moly! <laughs> so it was like that. <laughs> I was watching the movie and I, I, I am, I totally have the, not just like how anybody would at some point, like I totally have the claustrophobia thing. So even watching the movie was making me uncomfortable just having been on sets and seen crews and PA known movies, just thinking like, I don't even care if that's like the biggest soundstage at MGM, that would just still feel uh, claustrophobic. Like, it doesn't matter how you cut it. So now with what you're telling me that you did on top of it, um, you don't have to answer, but it kind of sounds to me like if I was the producer, I would have, like, maybe okay to craft services to have volume. Because that would be like, I yeah. think I would well, twitch and quit after a day. So I admire the hell out of you guys. We, we, <laughs> we didn't have craft service because you couldn't eat. It wasn't, it was, you, you were not allowed to eat because of the dust. And we actually... This oh, is a funny, right. funny part. Everybody asked me, why did you, not everybody, but some people asked me, why did you choose to use Zooms inside the mine as opposed to Prime? And it wasn't really a choice, even though I love the engineer Zooms, and I think they're wonderful for that. But we use the Zooms because we couldn't change lenses. Because changing the lens, the amount of dust and the amount of pollution that was in the mine it would have made it for, for a mistake or for a piece of dust in the sensor. We, we shot digital. 
So we just use zoom. So we had three cameras, three zooms. So give me the white camera. And instead of changing the lens, the camera itself would come with its own zoom. Um, so we had three zooms and that the whole movie. Wow. Yeah, we had three cameras, three zooms oh, wow. in the mine, in, in the exterior, in the Atacama Desert. And the other interesting thing is we shot in the darkest place on Earth, which is a mine, and in the brightest place on Earth, which is the Atacama Desert. In the Atacama Desert, magic hour lasts 28 seconds. You know, the sun is, it comes in the morning, and it feels like it's 11 o'clock at 6 in the morning, and it feels like it's 11 o'clock all the way to... 7 p.m. where it sets in a blink of an eye. There is no clouds. There is no nothing. There is no shade. It's the brightest, brightest possible, relentless place on Earth. So we went from the darkest place on Earth to the brightest place on Earth. And that was also really fun in a sort of torture way. Does that biologically, the way we adjust our eyes, did that biologically, like as a cinematographer, did you require, would the, I would think that that would take a few minutes for just the human body to alter what and how you're seeing things, regardless of experience. Was that ever something that that came up for was, yourself and we, the director? Yeah, we talked about it and we needed that feeling of the audience to be in the darkest place and then go outside and be in the brightest place. So we did carefully and, 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 and we ended up, I think, successfully um, using transitions where the audience would, would sort of shrink their eyes and, 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 and close their eyes a little bit because it was too bright outside, you know? And, and we gave that sense of anxiety and that sense of tragedy or hope, uh, depending on the scenes, to the audience um, through very careful choice of I wouldn't say lens, but of, of, of shot size, you know, it's like this in the mind, you know, you, there is one character in the frame and it's in the middle of the frame and it's the only place there is light. So the shot, though being a very wide shot with a small character, feels a very claustrophobic shot. And we would cut outside to this vast desert with one character in the same lens and the same kind of framing and it would feel like hope and, and openness, even though were they exactly the same shot, the lighting would change. I mean, the lighting, the, the, the amount of light would change. Right. Um, but it was, it, was, it was carefully designed and then all the design was thrown out of the door and just uh, we improvised, which is the beauty of it. You, well, de- you design your, to a science and then you throw everything. Sorry. Oh, no, 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 no. I, I was well, to say, plus you get the... I mean, the excellent built-in subtext of obviously the characters are going through something dark and then the people outside, well, actually, they're not going through something happy. So to have the happy uh, light with the same, well, uh, emotion, loss, loss, loss of life versus you're going to lose your life. um, Yeah, that really, you know, I'd seen that a few times when it came out. And when I rewatched it two weeks ago, uh, I was just even more floored. Uh, of course, that was one of the things I like the most, too, is I love films when we know the ending, but we still feel the drama. Like another example, uh, I wouldn't I, I gosh, I'm sorry, when I, I don't know off top of hand how close they were, but like United 93. So that brings me yes. to the question of 
writer, director, et cetera, but how you, how you translate your emotion to knowing that you have a responsibility to a, not, not just the story to meet your budget job, but the human side of the family and people who lived it. Well, uh, it's very hard. Also, I wanted to mention like Apollo 11, Apollo 13, whatever the, the, the movie. Oh, about, yes. yes yeah. the, the, the botched, yeah. the botched Apollo that we all Ron Howard, yeah. they would be alive. Yeah, Ron Howard. So there are examples of movies that made me cry and goosebumps, even though you know exactly what happened. And they don't change the history. They sort of follow the history. Um, one of the things Patricia did and I was witnessing, because I'm, I'm the DP, but also because I'm uh, closer than the regular DP, even though I always say that I'm marrying my director for the eight weeks of the shoot, you know, and then I divorce them. I just haven't divorced Patricia, we just keep remarrying for every time we shoot. <laughs> um, but one of, the, one of the things she did is she spent, I don't know how many days with the real miners, with the 33 each one of them, interviewing them and talking to them and meeting their families and talking to the wives and going to their houses and cooking with them and eating and drinking wine. And so she knew them intimately. One of the things she had to do is she had to collapse. The, the original script had 33 stories plus all the other 23 above, so 55 characters. So she had to collapse some characters so if you carefully look at the movie, there are probably five characters above the ground and five characters below the ground that you actually follow and know and everybody else is sort of part of the world, you know. So one of the things she had to do is talk to the miners as a collective and say, listen, I'm going to collapse some characters. So you will be a mix of you, 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 and you, you know. So when you watch the movie, don't expect to see 33 people because that's impossible to tell the story. You know, so that was a very big part of it and the respect for the audience and the respect in this case for a real audience. And the first time we all watched the movie, we watched it with them and they came out and clap and hug and, 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 and smile. Um, because she also collapsed the, the supposedly quote unquote bad guy. So the bad guy was really bad, but he did the thing that five people did. So. She, she didn't actually point at names or anything. So that was very hard, but it was very rewarding um, throughout the story. Well, no, that sounds fantastic. And let me just say thank you to, to actually acknowledge that. You just answered a question that I often think about with biopics. But a couple of questions that I just love to ask guests that's kind of like a inside the actor's studio homage um, to uh, wrap things up is I love to know if there's a genre, you know, you, you like the story, you like the director, budget's there, et cetera. Uh, but is there a genre that you just have to do before say they were saying, okay, you can't be a cinematographer anymore. What would be a what would be a genre that you would just be like? I got to do this before I hang my camera up. Um, I hope producers that greenlight these movies listen to your show, and I know they do. So when I'm saying this, I say it with uh, a hand in my heart. 
I like two genres. One is the political thriller, you know, a la Three Days of the Condor, All the President's Men, oh, Syriana. Oh. You know? Ooh, three Days so of that, the Condor, sorry. That, Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, Three Days of the Condor. That, that's the movie, you know? Um, so that's one genre. And the other genre, and most of your listeners probably won't know this movie, but it's the, you know, the Torah, Torah, Torah of movies, you know, the big action movies, you know. Okay. But not like necessarily only, of course, it, I would love to do a, a, a Mission Impossible 7. Please, 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 don't, don't get me wrong. But like the, the, the Saving Private Ryan, the, the Torah, 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 the River Kwai. I mean, those are two genres that I've explored a little uh, bit. Oh, River Kwai, like, sorry. <laughs> TV shows or I explore a little bit in, in, in Jack Ryan, you know, not to that extent. But uh, those are the genres I would love to to explore. Okay. And well, you know, you've given, you've inspired me to, I need to, this has been going on, the show's almost six years old, but I need to start having a disclaimer. This is a joke where the guests can't bring up Sydney Lamette, Bridge on the River Kwai, um, like 12 angry or, uh, 70s film because it's just, you know, like, I just like, I, I so didn't mean to interrupt you, but when you said three days of the condor, it's like, I remember my grandma saying, watch this movie. Oh, why Robert Redford in the seventies? Shut up. You saw Butch and Sundance the other night, watch it. And I remember sitting there at two in the morning, just like, I didn't want to drink water. I didn't want to go to the bathroom. I didn't want to move. I was just like, my God, it's three days of the condor. So, um, sorry. And bridge on the river quiet. I mean, could there be a more dramatic ending or a more edge of your seat no. ending? So no, just no. like, and, a, and then of course me, stupid me, I was 19. I go to my grandma and say, well, I didn't know that Obi-Wan Kenobi was doing movies in the fifties. <laughs> <laughs> of course, and she just good. looked at me and was like, you know, I think it was a moment of like, are you my grandson? Um, uh, okay. Like, oh, all right. We can't look down on people, but cool. So yeah. So I'm sorry. I, I just, I hear the word bridge on the river quiet. I just think of that last like 30 seconds and I'm a huge William Holden fan. So, um, this would be a point where my editor would tell me to shut up. So I'll move on to the next question. Um, uh, okay, then, let me quote another okay. movie. Okay. Let me quote another seventies movie before your editor decides that seventies is not kosher anymore. <laughs> Costa Gavras. Um, State oh, of Peace. yes. Okay. So oh. that's where my heart is. State of Siege, Costa Gavras, the Uruguayan dictatorship. So that kind of movie. The next question is just basically the opposite. A genre or story that, okay, the lights are off. You're back to that filmmaker life. You don't even have money for ramen noodles. Uh, what is a, what is a genre that you just would not take the gig? I would not mention a movie, though I could think of 228. Um, movies were the exploitation of a situation makes the audience be happy and, 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 and cringe for that. Um, 
super horror movies, even though I just did uh, it, but it is not in that genre. So slasher, horror, just pure fear and torture, I just can't stand it. And, and, and movies where, where female characters or, or minorities characters are portrayed as minorities characters and as female characters, as opposed to human beings. I just don't know how to do that. And it's not in my soul. Oh, okay, because our, our last guest uh, said, I asked her the, the question and she said, I don't think I could ever do a movie that would make the current administration look good. And she said, is that a genre? I said, I don't know. You might have invented one. <laughs> well, okay. I agree with her. I agree with her. Yes. And that, and that too. <laughs> okay. No slasher, gore, uh, and for the pure fun of torturing people, no movies against women and minorities. And because I am a minority, I have an accent. I wasn't a minority when I lived in my country, but I'm a minority here. So I guess I am a minority. Um, and yes, and then the third genre, which is probably the most important genre when I make this current administration look good. Yes, that one in particular. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I, I just, yes, I, I love it. I'm glad that you say that because we just had such a kick and I just was thinking, I was like, that is just so, that is so brilliant. Um, and again, oh, another yeah, that's, 18 that's hour podcast that we will do. Yeah. Um, a political thriller. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That makes sense to me. Um, I want to throw out there, this is quick to the audience, and then we'll roll into the last question. There's a great movie. I'm thinking it's 96 to 98, and it applies to what women go through. It's now more relevant than ever. It's called The Contender with Joan Allen. She was up for an Oscar, and it's uh, politics, D.C., uh, hypocrisy of males, uh, the sex thing with women. So please... Uh, people out there check out the contender with Joan Allen. Last thing is, is just anything that you as the guests would like to either open moment for you to uh, wrap what you'd like to say. I think in the current situation uh, that we're living in, that it's a combination of extreme inequality, extreme pandemic and extreme incompetence by the authorities that are, some of the authorities that are in charge of the response, not only here, but in the world. Um, I think this is an opportunity to rethink our priorities in life. As a cinematographer, what is my priority? You know, my priority is to use the coolest tool and the newest camera or the most expensive lens, or my priority is tell a story that will change hearts and, and hopes. As a society, what are we serving? You know, if, if, if the ultimate goal of a society is to increase the income of the shareholders and to decrease the possibility of free deciding of people what to do in life, then I think we need to rethink what we as a society are. And um, I think this is a moment that you will, we will remember this year as the year there was a hinge. And, and, and the door could open to hell or the door to, could open to purgatory or the door could just open to a prairie full of little flowers. Let's hope for the third, you know? Right. 
Let's hope American Airlines is with us on this one. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I that's a, I thank you for that answer. I'm I am really uh, intrigued to see the effects this will take on art. Uh, like you said, rethinking anything. Uh, just um, you know, a friend of mine and I like to just sometimes tell each other aren't we just lucky that we have associates we like and do something we enjoy? Like, like you're saying, just everything else being stripped away, the basicness or the basic thing of just, let's just do with what this time is. And like you're saying, hope for that there's going to be something uh, good down the road. So uh, with that, I wanted to say thank you for your time. Uh, we appreciate time. We know it's the most valuable commodity there is in this business. And we appreciate your stories and most of all, your work that it entertains. And it is that saying that people say it educates, entertains and enhances. So uh, we wanted to make sure that you knew that personally from myself and our team. Thank you so much. And thank you for making, you know, there's a saying when you're a news cameraman, like I was, there is, no good answers. There is only good questions. And you pose them all. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. Uh, thank you. Oh, no, don't all get right. the Italian My... tears growing. Going. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I'm very good at that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, no, so really, much, that man. was a very appreciate thank it. you. That's a gracious moment, and I appreciate that. So uh, I, I, I wish you well, you and yours, your family, friends, associates, in every way that safety is right now and uh, and have a wonderful day. And of course, you know, happy uh, creating whatever you're working on. Okay, wonderful. Take care, man, and uh, good luck and uh, hope to meet you in person one day. I take that to heart. And um, yes, I, I, I hope we will meet sooner than later. And uh, yeah, that sounds awesome. So um, take okay. care and I'm from Hawaii. So as we say, have an aloha filled day. <laughs> Thank you. Bye. All right. Well, I think that end says it all. Thank you for joining us. Have a great day. You know my motto, whether it's morning, afternoon, or night, or whatever other crazy day, time of day you found during COVID, make sure to watch a good movie. Heck, actually, check out Jack Ryan and the 33, and then keep on watching some movies. Aloha. Thank you for listening to the Talking Pictures Podcast, real conversation and movie-induced inspiration.